0: I will do my best to, to, to uh, restrain my, my profanity, as you call it. Profanity is such an old school world. Brilliant. I like it. <laughs> I, I'm among Americans now. I need to clean my act up. There you go. <laughs> Speak yes. like the Queen's English only. <laughs> there okay, you go. fine. I will bear it in mind. Welcome to
1: Growth, episode number 12 with Jason Miles and Michael Beasy.
2: Moats and Mountains. Some quick follow up before we dive into this. On the last episode, I had mentioned that Shopify scooped up the parcel tracking app Arrive, when in reality, they were the ones that made it. And it has been theirs all along. So let's let's dive right into it. Walk me through Jason
0: and Michael, who you guys are, and what we're going to dive into today. Well, um, who we are, I guess I could introduce myself. I'm an Amazon seller. and been uh, running an Amazon-based uh, podcast for several years, coaching people, running masterminds for some serious sellers here in, in London the UK. And um, that's my side of it. And uh, Jason is a wonderful man who came on my podcast guest as a guest originally and then reached out more recently to co-host the podcast. And I leapt at it with both open arms because he's uh, a gentleman, a smart man, and a really interesting thinker. So that's my side, <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that.
1: Uh, yeah, uh, from Seattle, Washington. And um, describe myself, I guess you could say, as an uh, author, entrepreneur, publisher. Um, my wife and I started our e-commerce work like 11 years ago. And uh, before that, I was a marketer uh, f- for career and you know fundraiser, nonprofit marketer, and um, then got into writing and teaching along the way. Um, we have a Shopify site that's highly trafficked. It's one of the Top one percent Shopify sites in the world, in terms of traffic, and I've written a couple books now with McGraw Hill. Uh, Instagram Power is the best of those, I think, in terms of the terms of the uh, interest or enthusiasm for it. And um, yeah, we have a good time. So awesome!
3: So so we're gonna extract your knowledge. So this is gonna be fun because and timely because Jonathan, we just had a podcast episode last week where we talked about you know, going off Amazon as a platform, which I think can make sense. We talked about like, you know, when you should, when you shouldn't. So Jonathan's launching a new brand here. So let's extract all your insights from the last 11 years. So Jonathan can uh, recreate it hopefully in six months. Um, so let's let's dive in because we, we got a few bullet points here that I'm actually pretty excited about. Walk me through the seven motes of defensibility. What does that mean?
1: Sure. Yeah. The, uh, the idea here is you've probably heard the quote before from Warren Buffett that what he's looking for in businesses is, is a business that is a castle with an unbreachable moat. And he defines that term by describing either a powerful brand or a wide brand, or he talks about a few other things. Well, when I heard that, I just love the idea. And I thought, man, how do I make our business defensible? How do we set it up so that we really, really are bulletproof from wannabe competitors who want to come along and, and take what we've got? And or just time, or just over over the course of time, do, you know, do we have a system that grows stronger and stronger or do we have a system that grows weaker and weaker? And so, you know, we worked on that for a long time and have a list of of topics that really go into defensibility. And so we did a recent podcast episode, Michael and I did about the seven moats, we call it of defensibility, where we really describe in detail some of that and, and really, you know, unpack it for everybody. Yeah.
3: Awesome. Can you walk us through, you know, just briefly what those seven are?
1: Sure. Yeah. Happy to do it. So um, let's talk through just a few of those and then um, we can dive into any of them if you want, but let's just go through a little bit of it. So the first thing I'd say is uh, a powerful brand that is an attracting, has an attracting quality to it is the first one. That's the one Warren Buffett talks about. And uh, it's obvious to all of us that if you sell online, you need a powerful brand. And a lot of Amazon sellers will make the mistake of creating a private label brand. That's really sort of a a brand in name only, you know, it's a brand that really doesn't have any attracting qualities to it. And it's not even maybe legally owned uh, or available, you know, to them. Um, And so that's the first one. Um, And it can be hard to think through, but it's important to think through if you, especially if you want to sell on Shopify, Um, you've got to have a powerful brand.
3: Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. We we actually see and we have talked about previously where a lot of people call it private label, but actually what they're doing is white labeling, right? They're just
1: throwing a name on it and saying this is my brand, but you haven't actually built a brand. It's completely exactly. different. Yep, yep, yep. Um, so so that's the first one. I think the and, and that's the most important thing to think through. If you're really gonna create something that's meaningful and powerful, um, you wanna think through what the brand is gonna really do for people. Um and so that's, that's one. So the second one that I like to talk to a lot of people about is a product strategy that's a near monopolistic uh, product opportunity. Now, what's near mon- monopolistic in nature? Um, well, an artist creates near monopolistic things or actually monopolistic things. Uh, but when you talk about physical products, you, a lot of people ask the question, how can I get a quasi monopoly or something that just can't be immediately knocked off by other people. And there are things you can do to think through that. Um, You know, one of the things that you can do straight in a very straightforward way is just have an exclusive deal with a manufacturer where you're the only person in the United States or whatever, your country uh, that can sell the item online. Well, when you've got that, you've got something special if the product itself is special, you know? Um, And so that that's a type of, um, you know, uh, layer of defensibility. And there are other things you can do along those lines that create near monopolistic qualities. Uh, our site that we run is called Pixie Fair. It's a catalog of about 3000, uh, digitally downloaded sewing patterns and they're unique. They're, they are in essence, one of a kind, uh, digital documents. And so that's another example of near monopolistic, uh, opportunity. Yeah. Want me to keep going? You want to dive into that one? Yeah, yeah. Let's keep going. These are good. I like these. Okay, so um, so let me just break down a few more, um, and uh, and maybe they'll pique some interest. The third one is a community or tribe of loyal followers. So these are people who really would say, "I love this brand. I know who these people are. I care about this." Having a brand or a tribe, uh, you know, a, a group of followers is is one of those things where um, it it transcends product. If you have people who are really, really pumped about your company and who you are, what you're doing, then it's a higher level of defense than just having a good product. Um, So building a tribe, having people who would really say, I love these people. I know who they are. I back their play. I'm excited about what they're doing is is a great one. Um, The fourth one is channel dominance. So if you're, all the Amazon sellers know this. If you're baked in as the number one search result in Amazon for your keyword um, and there's a, there's a virtuous cycle that happens or spiral where you get more reviews. Amazon sees that they keep you in the buy box or, you know, and you've got uh, Amazon's choice that pops in and these marketplaces that we sell on eBay, Amazon, Etsy, they like take takeoff situations. They want to install a King of the mountain. And so if you have channel dominance, you do have a layer of defensibility. Now it's not permanent, and you can lose it, of course, if you run out a product because you can't source fast enough, you, lo- you can lose it. But that's an idea. Um, fifth one is data. The person who controls more data wins. If you have, for example, a list of 100,000 email addresses, you're incredibly strong compared to a new upstart in your niche that has 100 names on their list. Sixth one is high switching costs. So you build your product in such a way that your customers are baked into what you've what you've offering them and, and really have an opportunity to to go deep with you and a hard time or a, a, a lack of incentive to switch off of your product or your deal and then the seventh one I would say is a culture of innovation uh, where you really really come up with new products elegantly for your customers in such a way that if your competitors are matching what you do and Elon's uh, must is a great example of this you know if somebody copies what he did in 2012. That's cool. He's seven, eight years ahead of him. And so you want to have that same mentality inside your business. Yeah. Yeah, no,
3: that's, that's awesome. You're, you're, you're speaking my language. I like it. (laughs) All these things. I'm like, yes, yes, yes. Um, There's a few books I want to highlight too. to that, that target in on, on a few of those. Right. So like 1000 true for 1000 true fans, that's going to be one for it really, I would say like the sequence here matters too. Right. So I think in what we did with, with, with aura specifically is like, we built that tribe first. And then we built the brand on top of that tribe, which which made getting traction super, super easy, which leads me to the second book recommendation, which is traction um, <laughs> in terms of like, you know, channel dominance, right? Like, like what is that channel? And I think it's important to ask and test, right? It's not just like Amazon's the only thing. It's like, no, like there is Shopify. There is Etsy. there There are certain products and brands that are going to do better on different channels. And it's important not only to understand what should your distribution channel be, but also what your growth channel should be which is you know the tr- the book traction actually talks about like growth channels but i think there's enough analogy overlap um overlap there but but yeah i couldn't i couldn't agree more it's it's one of those things where i think a lot of people negate all seven of those and say i don't know why it's not working well <laughs> in my opinion those seven moats so to speak are your foundations how do you have a great Company, you have a great brand. How do you ensure that growth and, and marketing is not a, pro- a problem? You build a tribe around that, right? Like, how do you ensure that your business doesn't? become extinct in one to two years? Will you innovate, right? You're consistently growing. And, and I think this is a good thing to bring up too is like feedback loops, right? Like how do you innovate? Well, it's feedback loops, right? Having this, this amount of confirmation um, and communication with, your, with the people that you serve allows you to know what you need to be innovating on because they're giving you the problems, problem after problem after problem. It's now up to you as the entrepreneur to turn those problems into solutions. And theoretically it's innovative by default. Um, and one thing I, I want to highlight heavily here, cause I, I think it's one that's just easily overlooked is the data. Like Jonathan knows I geek out with data far too much, <laughs> but it's one of those things that it, it is a competitive advantage if you understand it. And it's not just how many emails you have. That's certainly part of it, but it's like, how are you making decisions? Are you making data driven decisions? Me and Jonathan were talking about this last week, right? Like can you develop your own algorithm for how you make a decision to release a new SKU right like how do you versus when you don't like if you can clarify those things based off actual data those decisions one becomes super easy and two more effective
1: love it yeah totally agree 100% and obviously there are trends in these things you know the recent data collection bit that people are going after now is phone numbers so that you can do text based marketing you know and you just realize there are, there are elements of these you know kinds of strategies that make you stronger and stronger and stronger over time. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt.
3: Let, let's kind of switch gears here. I've, I've got business model evaluation. Walk me through that. Yeah, Michael, you want to take a whack at that?
0: Yeah, sure, I can do that. I'm I Just one point I wanted to make or a question that I think is worth posing for yourself if you're selling purely on Amazon is what... Percentage of those moats of defensibility can you get? Because I think you can have some of it, like your, your product type strategy can be some of it. You have a lot less control, and the data side obviously is the bit we fight to get any data out of them, right? Whether it be you know any demographic data, or anyone else. So that's an interesting one to put up there. In terms of business model, that brings that up really because I think. Um, there's various on Amazon things. So we could, we could go back and forth a bit with this. Uh, we, uh, Jason, cause there's like 16 models that we discussed the other day. So obviously some of them are retail arbitrage, garage sailing, wholesale arbitrage, online arbitrage, private label, as you say, correctly, Dylan, I think that there is a difference between simply slapping your logo on a product versus innovating on it. Um, and then custom manufacturing is the next one up. So those are the ones, those, that's the world, the sort of world I swim in mostly private label type stuff. Um, So I guess, Jason, you can speak a bit better to the other ones, like handmade stuff. You've dealt with those. So do you want to keep going with those?
1: Yeah, well, maybe we won't mention all 16 and you'll have to come (laughs) listen to our podcast episode about (laughs) it to actually check them all out, right? Which we... The hook. I like it. (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, I think that there's a lot of sellers who get into online selling from because they've heard about, you know, Amazon retail arbitrage usually, or, you know, kind of the entry level Amazon strategies and have an interest in trying to figure it out. Back in the day when I was interested in this stuff, it was eBay that was the big deal. And so I heard about eBay opportunities. And so, you know, we all have an on-ramp that we take. But the important thing on this issues of what your product strategies are is, is uh, you're going to pivot. You know, you're going to do something and then you're going to find the basically what you might call the the functional limits of that strategy, And then you're going to ask yourself, is there other, you know, are there other topics, other opportunities, other things I could do online? And of course, you become exposed to more and more things. So our conversation that, you know, where we went through this with the 16 items or uh, or models, boy, that's not even, I mean, that's just the tip of the iceberg, really. There are so many, you know, but we try to mention the common ones and pros and cons because the most important thing to realize is you have to have an evaluation methodology to decide which ones are right for you. And how do you evaluate them fairly rather than just hearing the shiny object webinar about how amazing whatever is, you know, and whatever, if I say any of them, I'm going to offend someone. Who, you know, <laughs> yeah,
3: no, for sure. And, and I want to highlight that too, yeah. is like, there's, there's this last piece of the puzzle that a lot of people use to jump from course to course, right? Because you can pick any of those 16 business models and I can show you a seven figure seller on it, Right. So there is no right one. There is no best one. It's purely subjective to your needs. And so I think it's easy for people to say, well, I just, I feel like I need that last piece of the puzzle. And so they go course to course to course. But what's interesting and, and something I found out, you know, over the last like two years, the last piece of the puzzle is your own personal experience. It's having to go through it, right? It's the execution of said thing, because what's interesting is, yeah, we all do take a similar like, like on ramp, right? Which is what you're, you're saying, like. The friction is so low to get started with online arbitrage or retail arbitrage. But eventually you say, you know what, I'm really building a skill set here and I'm starting to see what I'm capable of. And I'm also starting to see those limitations like scalability. So, okay, a lot of people now end up going the wholesale or the private label route because it's more scalable, right? You have more control over things. You find the things you like and the things you don't like in those initial business models. And then you kind of iterate, pivot, right? Into the next thing. But what's great is you've built through experience and amazing skill set to say, I now have the confidence to go launch my own product because I know what I'm doing here, right? Or I'm just ready for that next thing.
0: I would say one of the important things about the business model concept and one of the reasons why I love Jason's thinking in you know, <laughs> because that's why I wanted to start the podcast with him, because it's so important to detach um, the conceptual level from particular um applications, um particular software, particular, you know, business models so called that actually are very channel dependent. If it ends up being a sort of Amazon private label versus wholesale fight, um then we've already lost because really it it's there are characteristics of business models that I believe had ex- probably existed for a hundred years um or more that haven't got anything to do with internet marketing, let alone the particular channel you're on, and I think if you can identify the model from that very abstract sixty thousand foot view, then you've got a competitive advantage because you're thinking more clearly already than a lot of people out there.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I, I take the the thoughts there um, a, a little bit differently, I guess. Um, I I think the question I always ask myself is, when I talk about business models with people is: Is it scalable to a large number, and is it defensible? And if you ask those two questions, then clearly there is a rank order of business models. It, it, they're not all created equal. They are different creatures, you know what I mean, with different pros and cons so so although they might all make someone a million dollars, um, that's not to say that if a hundred people used you know all, all the models, there wouldn't be clear uh, quality differences between the models. and so I, I think those two questions help clarify. Is it scalable and is it defensible? Retail arbitrage, for example, is not defensible. You know, you just there's no way to defend yourself against other sellers. You're not really uh, creating a business there. You're creating a sourcing company or you're an agent really for Amazon. Uh, that business model has pros and cons. You know, everybody who's in, in the industry is familiar with. Um, but that distinguishes itself very differently from, let's say, a digital goods seller who's creating original digital content um and those have different merits. So I think that's where kind of my mind goes with this stuff, yeah.
3: Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um and you can almost like reverse engineer it too, right? So I've always said wholesale is a great cash flow business model because the you can condense going from zero to profitability, you know, pretty well compared to like a private label, but I've also said that the con of wholesale is that it's very hard to exit at a decent multiple. You can exit a wholesale Amazon business, but your multiples from what I've seen anywhere between one to like 1.5. Like not good, (laughs) like not good, right? Because I've even done this where I, I saw one for sale and I was doing the due diligence and they had to give me all of their SKUs. So why do I need to buy your business now? So if you can, if you know what you wanna do, if you're like, hey, I wanna grow a company and exit it, I wanna sell it. Okay, well now we can start to kind of fine tune and add some filters to that list, right? It's already kind of sorted, but we can now say, you know what? I don't just want a cash flow business. Or hey, I want to quit my job, therefore I do want a cash flow business. I don't want to, you know, reinvest the the profits from this business for a year or two years. So really, you know, you know, fuel the growth, so to speak. Then it becomes a little bit easier, in, in my opinion, to to kind of whittle down the options because decision fatigue is terrible. <laughs> and you can get it down to one or two where you're like, okay, cool. This is one that, you know, subjectively speaking, has the highest probability for me to succeed.
1: Yeah. No, I totally agree. We, Michael and I did an episode where we talk about evaluation criteria for these business models. So, and and we walk through some of that, just exactly what you just described. Um, and the, you know, there are things. For example, is it is there a recurring income associated with it? That's a very be- a different business model than a one off sale. Yeah, right? I couldn't agree more. Um, can it be digitally delivered? Right, that's a very different business model than a physical delivery. So these are the aspects that you start to evaluate models on. Yeah.
0: Thank <laughs> you. I think um, what's interesting to to sort of wend my way between all these different things we're saying, I think to your point, Jason, I agree that there is a kind of semi-objective, shall we say, the best way of putting it, um, evaluation of the quality of different models because scalability and defensibility are, are, there is a sort of rank order you end up with. Um, As you said then, Dylan, yeah, if you set a particular objective, um, then that really narrows down the range of options in a different way. But what I would say is, is the missing piece, and you said also about your experience, really, obviously, You're going to pivot based on experience. I was interviewing somebody earlier today who uh, started off with private labeling and, after four and a half months of full time work on it and throwing a lot of money at it, having been a very successful entrepreneur in many other ways, pivoted to wholesale. And then he gained a lot of good experience and that worked for him. But another missing piece of that is the pre existing skill set you come to if you're starting off in e commerce from a different background. Because I do think that that is part of the puzzle. Okay, where do you want to get to? uh, defining um, objectives very important but then defining for yourself or in a really good insightful self-aware way where you're starting from I think then paints the picture of you know what that path needs to look like as well so I think that's just another part of the puzzle
3: yeah. Yeah. Without a doubt. Let's let's switch gears here because I want to want to get a little selfish, but I'm going to do it for Jonathan. We get the nine mountains of traffic here. That's really intriguing to me because I feel like when we unpackage this, there's going to be a, a lot in here that I don't know. And it's kind of getting me pumped.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. Wait, wait, where do you want to start? What do you want to talk about? Mountain one. When I first wrote a book called Pinterest Power with McGraw Hill in 2011, um, I was really intrigued because Pinterest describes itself as a a visual discovery engine. They don't call themselves a social media platform. So I was like, well, what are they talking about? Like, what does that mean? Visual discovery. And so I really started to ask the question, what's the difference between social media and other types of uh, online sites? And I started to do this categorization project. I really wanted to know what like what I was talking about when I was talking about this stuff. And so I started to just bundle and nestle together different types of websites that send traffic. Like, you know, what are all the sites that send traffic to other places around the internet? And I categorized them over time. It took me, I did it for the book, but then I refined it over a couple of years. And bottom line, there are nine types of uh, traffic sources on the internet. And, It's a finite list in my mind. And if somebody can tell me a 10th type, I'm happy to uh, change my model. But when I go through this, the nine mountains with people, they're like, oh, this is, this is actually like how these should be grouped and bucketed together. If you just go to Google Analytics, for example, they'll tell you where there are referral uh, sources of traffic. They don't explain to you the types of referral sources. In a logical way, and so this idea of nine mountains of traffic is my attempt to try to put together that that type of thinking that that's the sources by category of traffic uh, around the internet. And so, yeah, I'm happy to go through the, the list of nine and then kind of poke around uh, into the idea with. Yeah, you. that'd be fantastic. Sure. Well, let me let me rattle them off, and then uh, feel free to propose what doesn't fit or where you might think I'm missing something. I, I'm eager to expand this model, and I'm um I'm really excited to share it and, and by the way this you can get the ebook for this just sorry it's shameless plug 9mountains.com uh, is an ebook we've got for this but the first one is email marketing the original and best source of internet traffic is email marketing it still works today don't let anybody say it doesn't i amended to that broadcast messages so things like manychat uh, you know broadcast tools i i 'm on udemy for example I have I think twenty nine thousand students. I can do a broadcast message in udemy it's technically not email marketing but because it 's through their tool, but it's a broadcast message one to many so you get the idea there it's it's email plus a couple other things uh, second one is organic search uh, Google of course dominates that. third one is what I refer to as branded browsing that 's when people know your url your name of your brand, and they just type it straight in. Uh, Direct typing of the URL is what Google would call that. Um, The fourth is organic social, right? So all the social media work you do that's not paid. The fifth one is organic referral. That's where you get referral links from large internet companies, you know, websites. And we could talk all about that. Uh, And then you get into the paid traffic strategies. Paid social, paid search, paid referral, and paid display. And that's nine in total. And I think it covers every kind of traffic you can think of. But if you can think of some that don't fall in, let me know. But I'm trying to think
3: of some. And yeah, it's um the, the oddball examples are still within one of those categories. You know, one, one one strategy we've we've been wanting to play around with is okay, as we have these large conferences for Amazon sellers, let's do like a geofenced ad. But it's still ad, right? It's still paid ad. So yeah, no, that's super interesting. I think that there may be well. That may be considered the affiliate like JV partnerships, right?
1: Realistically, you could say that's a that's an affiliate, though. So that falls into my category eight, which is paid referral. Gotcha. So or it's paid social, depending on if they're really a social influencer. But you know how it is when you do a deal. A lot of times those people will have a blog. They'll have an Instagram account. So you're really paying for either their social, uh, you know, references from their social accounts or references from their websites or email marketing. But it still falls in, in my view, to the to generally paid referrals. How I think about those.
2: Yeah. Where do you slot physical advertising into all this? Like specifically, I'm thinking about, you know, when I when I get my mail, I don't know what it's like for you, Michael, in, in your country, but our mail system is essentially propped up with by advertising, and more often than not, I'm 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 just throwing this crap away. But I'm noticing a shift from just the generic like grocery store ads and home improvement store ads to more bespoke if you will cards that are a, a single specific brand that is a more targeted direct message to my household how do you how do you slot that into your nine categories
1: it's a great question so those are so my mo- nine mountains of traffic are all internet based sources of traffic beyond internet of course you'd have direct response radio tv print the traditional traffic strategies marketers would have used pre-internet or still do, of course. But this is just online sources of traffic, really, is kind of how I'm thinking about this list, yeah.
0: To your point, Jonathan, about... um... The post in the UK or mail, as you call it, um, it's actually very relatively free of of you know, marketing messaging, apart from the obvious things that you literally just get local pizza delivery places dumping stuff in your mailbox. So I think it's a channel that's wide open for those who are willing to spend some money. And bearing in mind that direct marketing is one of the, the great American business inventions that literally goes back to the earliest network. Um, the rail network and as soon as that was completed in america right in true american fashion everyone started selling to each other through sears catalog and what have you and so i think that's it's very very it's the most old school you can get in direct response marketing i think it's actually a very clear channel with very little clutter compared to when i was a kid and it was full i
2: i mentioned it specifically because in in my my journey in my brand building journey one of one of the things I want to especially focus on is my community nearby, right? Like part of part of the message for the brand is it is local. It is a community-built organization, right? This this area, this suburb of Seattle where I live in, like there is a really strong idea, uh, kind of camaraderie feeling about, you know, local businesses, like going down to the, the downtown area and then, you know, having coffee at the local – coffee joint or whatever, right? Like that's it's it's a reoccurring theme. And I wanted to piggyback off of that. And I at least from my perspective, one of the easiest, well maybe not easiest, I guess it depends on how you want to measure easy. Easy is relative, really, uh, ways to get in front of all of the people out there is direct mail. And it it, it at first it seemed kind of antiquated because I mean who you know, who who responds to their ads, right, in, in the mail. I, I throw most of them away personally, but here I am saying, yeah, this sounds like a good idea, I'm gonna do it myself, right? And ultimately what I kept coming back to is that I throw all of them away because they're not they're not personal to like what I'm looking for. Like I already have an, an internet mattress, I already have an internet food delivery service, like I don't need more of those. But if there was something else that came by that maybe I did feel like I needed in my life, right? Like I would I would totally respond to an internet ad. Like for the, the food service example, we got a card in the mail from HelloFresh a couple of days ago. I just signed up with them using that card in the mail because Blue Apron wasn't doing the job.
0: <laughs> well, let's talk about it. I was just going to say that... Um... The thing that strikes me about all this, again, like the business model thing, getting too channel specific can blind you to the business model behind it on the abstract level. And I think what you're just referring to is that Jonathan is really not the the difference between direct mail marketing and email, um, because we all receive just crazy amounts of spam. In other words, it's it's not about that. Channel at all, I think it's about message to market match. What you are just referring to—if you're in the market for food and somebody says I can give you cheap food quicker than everyone else, or better food, or it fits your paleo diet, whatever—I think that's that's the key thing, isn't it? So I guess for me, that's what it comes down to. That old school, the granddad of internet marketing, on in um, what do you call him? Dan Kennedy talks about message to market match. I, I think it's such an obvious thing to say and reference, but. Most people don't do it well enough, myself certainly included. And I think if you nail that bit, everything else flows from there, really.
1: Yeah, let me just add in just a quick commentary on that. You know, this stuff bleeds together pretty fast. One of the best SEO tactics you can um, do to help your site out is to actually claim it as a – with Google My Business, to claim your business as a local business. It helps with the organic uh, results. Google likes businesses that are real uh, associated with keywords. Like And so if you have a local presence in Kenmore, and you're right up the road from me, so it's fun to talk about this stuff, right up the road there, if you're talking about um, a, a local business to, you know, North Seattle area, Lake Union area, and on and on, you, you, Google is going to appreciate the fact that you've claimed that and you've set it up so that people locally can find you. Now, the merits of direct mail... Versus online advertising is something to be discussed and debated. And I can just tell you what I coach my clients on, and I teach my clients is to start with the free half of the nine mountains of traffic: email marketing, organic search, branded browsing, organic social, and our organic referral. That is infinitely cheaper, like than 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 the paid versions of you know online and. Okay, multiple,s like factors, cheaper than offline advertising. Um, so that's just sort of where to start, in my
2: view, um, is with the free online sources of traffic. Yeah, the the local business uh, aspect for Google is, is one that I admittedly hadn't thought of yet, and it's that makes a lot of sense now in hindsight. How do you how do you approach that if you're a business that doesn't have like a retail storefront or office space or anything like that?
1: you've really got my curiosity peaked. you haven't told us what your business is so what do, what is it that you're doing man what what's this business you're speaking <laughs> of
2: <laughs> so my my business um i haven't, I haven't talked about it too much on the podcast i have brought it up oh, here okay. and there if
1: it's top secret no worries but, but
2: I mean yeah. it's it, it's not going to break the earth if if, if I share it so that's I, I don't I, I don't mind so I'm starting a a local uh, coffee brand uh, very very Kenmore themed very very local oriented i guess i could say without without giving away too many unfinished details right but like the the entire concept is that this is this is something that that's built here in town right this that's that's the entire vibe i want to go with because as you know jason you know seattle is coffee just coming out our ears right there's there, there's coffee left and right but at, at least around here there aren't too many coffee sources that actually feel like they're local, feel like they're, they're, they're small, right? Um, you know, if you've, if, if any of you guys have ever been to Portland, right? Like that's their entire scene, right? Starbucks is a, is a swear word, right? You do you know, you never say that word out loud. <laughs> every, yeah. you know, there's a, there's a unique coffee shop on every corner and everyone has their favorite, right? Like around here, at least from the folks that I've talked to in my area, that, that's not really the case, right? Like there are literally two Starbucks in a mile in each direction for me right now maybe even less. Right. And they're always full of people. And one of the, one of the biggest things I've heard so far is that there really isn't a whole lot of other choice.
3: So, so I want to clarify, cause, cause I think that this is important because we're, we're hitting another level of me and you understanding it or me understanding it with you and me talking, um, over, over time about it. So do you think the opportunity is to not only open a coffee shop, but to also like do it yourself like have your own beans and all that stuff or is it just you want to be the coffee itself cuz i think that's important to clarify
2: i want to be the coffee itself i don't have any plans on opening okay. a shop itself that was never okay. never part of my plan my my ultimate goal is to be the coffee that appears at your door every week or every two weeks or every month okay. that you, that is, oh, that is your coffee, right? Through various okay. like subscription models and in discounts and referrals, you know, all so of the, we, all of the yeah, various recurring
3: revenue, right? Exactly. Nice. Your, your valuation just went up. That's great. You, you get two, two to three more, <laughs> more, more multiples. Um, cause something I've been playing around a lot with, so I've never done my own physical brand, but, but it's interesting, right there. I feel like there's a lot of opportunity from a consignment standpoint, Right. You go to those coffee shops that already have the traction, and say, "Hey, I want you to put it on display, cost you nothing." and then I'll just come back once a week and then you pay me x whatever it is, and I restock it. And then that way you're gaining traction. you're you're validating the actual brand itself. If people keep coming back and back, and what's great is now you have an insert <laughs> inside the coffee bag that says, "Hey, if you want this recurring, if you want this to show up to your house once a week, once every two weeks, here's where you do that, right? So you're able to like, in my opinion, and this is my assumption here, right? Like gain traction, validate it super fast and build that network to be able to have that tribe, right? It, it kind of it can work within those those you know, seven modes of defensibility we've been talking about.
1: Yeah. Let me just uh, just chime in for a second, Jonathan. Let's connect offline because I don't know if you've heard of the green room in Auburn, but they're a roasting company that will allow private label companies. Have you heard of, you know who Jim Ray is? He used to worked for Starbucks and used to, he's an importer and I can hook you up locally with their services. They're fantastic. They've supplied coffee for big, big companies, Costco and and beyond, and they love working with private label brands. Um, So, and then we've, I've done interviews with Mike Brown, the founder of Deathwish Coffee. I don't know if you've heard of Deathwish. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. So Mike is super cool. He's been interviewed in some of my books that I've done. And so I can send you the chapters out of
0: there where he really talks about his brand strategy. I love it. I love it. That's helpful, yeah. Amazing. I, I, we're in the, the birth of a brand here on air. I'm loving it. Um, just a couple of thoughts. Um, first of all, I mean, I'm sort of trying to blend things together. So again, sort of off the top of the head could be rubbish. But one of the brands that uh, is very, very established, like over 200 years old, um, in which is pretty unusual in the private label space, but not, not unique uh, in the mastermind that I run, has been doing very, very effective, as you said, Jason, it's, it's expensive, but do effective direct mailing. One of the things they sent out 100,000 flyers before Christmas, because they've got a, a toy based brand, it's very heritage based and so forth. So there are elements, it's family and heritage as opposed to the local thing. But there is a sort of, if you like humanizing elements in the brand, they wanted to accentuate. So one thing that strikes me is just most people talk about inserts and use them on Amazon, but it's literally a card. And it's, you know, just says, you know, if you've got want to give us a review, go here and click here, or possibly something else similarly unimaginative but if you get a really high level brochure that really deep dives into the localness the, the values you have whatever it is that you feel makes your brand special then that strikes me as an, again it's kind of obvious but it's underused i mean any big brand does it um, smaller brands tend to leave that till later i wonder if that's a halfway house because at least the delivery part of that equation financially is, is taken care of
2: as far as inserts go, there's one brand that really stood out to me. It, they're definitely not sponsoring the show, in any ways. I just happen to really like their stuff. Uh, is Grove Made? They're uh, based out of Portland, just a few hours south of here. They make desk accessories and tools for the the more modern minimalist desk lifestyle, if that's even a, a subgenre. <laughs> um, Love it. And w- one of the things that they did when they sent me my things is they they included a few cards, you know, business card sized, you know, cards that had. Not just a you know coupon code for my next order, but there were also a couple that were printed differently that said "Give these to your friends," and also had that that same you know that same code on it. Right. So now all of a sudden you have these these easy to hand out, easy to drop off, deposit discounts. You had to do no marketing at all whatsoever. Like it was just there and whether they choose to do anything with it is is up to you but I gave it out. I I mean I shared it with my coworkers. I said, "Hey, I got three of these things. This code's good for three uses. Go nuts, guys." You know, these are all people that I know would love this stuff and Grovemade had to do next to zero effort to make that happen.
0: Nice. Very elegant. I love it.
2: Well, let me just in-
1: let me just take a second to encourage you, man. You know, a lot of people come at ideas and you're know, like, "How could this work? Could it work?" When I interviewed Mike Brown and he explained the massive hole in the market that he observed it just makes you realize these categories that even though they have a lot of competitors there's still tons and tons and tons of angle and opportunity and people who are underserved and people who you can help so you should just just go for it man this it'll be awesome
2: oh yeah no i'm i'm very well aware that that coffee is a massive it, there are an abundance of brands there's no doubt about that but it is also literally a massive industry and the the bespoke more specialized coffee subgenre is still just fantastically huge and all of the avid coffee drinkers i've spoken to who actually care about what kind of coffee they drink they a lot of them shift around, you know, they're always trying out new, interesting stuff, right? They There are some that have their, their loyal brands, but I, I couldn't find a single person that wasn't open to trying what I had to offer just because it was different than what they were already drinking. You know, it, they they, they like the story behind it. Like it took very little to convince them to at least give it a shot.
0: Man, you should send some over to North London. I'm sure there'll be a market <laughs> for that here as well. Definitely. I'm I'm up for that. I'm a massive coffee fan, so please. I'll keep you in mind.
3: Cool, so let's take this this home. Um, we, we covered the seven modes of defensibility, the nine mountains of traffic, which I loved. We, we even deep dove into some se- se- you know like sequences and, and stuff like that, which was pretty fun to kind of you know paint a different light on some stuff. Um, one, thank you both Michael and Jason for, for coming on the podcast. This was really fun and timely for for Jonathan launching a new brand <laughs> so that's got kind of a great great timing there. Um, where can where can people find you guys and continue that conversation?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the exciting thing for Michael and I is that this new podcast we've started has started to get some energy and momentum, and it's it's been fun to watch. It's been fun to participate in. He, he's been a longtime podcaster. I've always wanted a podcast, but never had one, and so the e-commerce leader podcast is the place to check out these conversations. And it and it really is a sort of a different format where it's just him and I going deep on these topics. And you know, I teach online marketing. At, uh well. Jonathan, you'll be familiar with Seattle Pacific University and Northwest University, so local universities. So I've got, you know, models that I share and frameworks and resources that we share. And so, you know, our goal is to go deep and really create a resource for e-commerce leaders that is going to be framework driven and really be something that people can go back to as a resource over and over again. And that's quite a bit different than an interview based podcast. So we're putting together in a
0: different way and hopefully it's going to add a lot of value to people's life. Yeah. I just wanted to add to that as somebody who's a veteran of, of running an interview based podcast, um, after a while and, and Dylan, you must have experienced this as well if you're if you're mining like amazing uh, amazing fBA does um the private label on amazon thing that 's quite a narrow business model after four hundred episodes, you find yourself having the same conversations again and again, but always at a surface level and for me, this is the absolute off- opposite it 's the chance to go deeper and deeper and whenever we mention a topic and we go, well, we have to do several episodes on that we have the the space to expand into that, that I think for anyone who's really serious about business as a game and activity beyond just trying to get some bucks now, that's kind of exciting because it gives us the option to, to really create a whole framework of framework of frameworks, which, which for me, that, that floats my boat. So if anyone else is out there, it floats their boat. That's, I guess, what it's for.
3: That's fantastic. Yeah. That's kind of, I got to the exact same problem with um, wholesale made easy, which is like, there's only so much you can talk about. <laughs> like, there's only so much yeah. depth you can really go into. <laughs> yeah. And and me and Jonathan started to talk, and we're like, you know what? We need our own podcast. I need a co-host certainly because me just being by myself talking doesn't work. Now, Michael, I was joking with you before we started recording. It's like half the time, me and Jonathan just jump into to a, a recording session with no like hardcore like here's the topics and outline. Let's like let's just talk. Like, what what do you want to talk about today? And we end up talking for like an hour, hour and a half in depth and like it's more enjoyable it feels like an actual conversation and i think for a lot of a lot of people in the business world a lot of them just want to hear the conversations that don't get recorded so why don't we just record them and that's when things get really fun
1: yeah that's good man i love that and that we're kind of in the same vein we're in the same vein yeah
2: when we when we were planning the episode or the the episodes the initial episodes anyways we had we had a structure we had a punch list of things we wanted to talk about and that lasted maybe all of six seven episodes and then we <laughs> it was it that was it was like all right what are we talking about today well I watched this cool thing you know last week's episode I was we literally started you know I watched Shopify reunite we want to talk about that and an hour later like we you know we went systematically down the list and it it just yep. created its own set of subtopics just by itself, and that I, I, I think I think Dylan and I do well together. Dylan well, Dylan, Dylan well. Dylan says words, and <laughs> Dylan I try well. <laughs> to say words, and it, it sometimes works. <laughs> um, Dylan, I, I can pick his brain. Probably. I can drop some pretty pointed questions and sit back. I could you know go get some coffee while he's chatting and. <laughs> It's great. I love it.
3: Yeah, I can legit. Michael learned this because we we had a beautiful outline for the podcast for three episodes. Shot that in the head from day one, and just we, we <laughs> went down some rabbit holes, which was fun. But like, yeah, I can talk for eight hours, probably about anything. It's a gift.
2: I sold Dylan on it because I told him I, w- I would I would promise to be the one that edits it and publishes it and does all the all the hard work. So that was that was all it took to get him in.
3: Love it. Hey, you know? Partnerships.